All right, hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, we'll be in verses 7 through 12 this morning as we continue our Easter series of the Passion of the Christ in Isaiah 52, 53, and 61. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to make sure that we, we know what it is we want to walk away with this morning. This is the key truth, and it's that God reigns victorious, granting us peace happiness, and salvation in our deliverance from sin and death for the life of the world. And as you're turning to that text, I do have a question for you. Um, have, have you ever experienced the feeling of exile? Now, many of you, that may be a term you don't use very often, but it's any sort of, exile essentially is any sort of cut-offness. It can occur in any number of ways. Sometimes it occurs because uh, we assume someone doesn't like us. Sometimes it occurs because someone makes it very clear they don't like us. Sometimes it occurs in relationships. Sometimes it occurs in jobs. Sometimes it just occurs in life where you just have this, this aching sense uh, that you maybe are alone or that people don't understand where you're coming from or that if people really knew you, they really wouldn't like you. Uh, and so this feeling of exile, I think, is something that we all have felt at some point in time. It can be a depression of sorts. It can be any sort of feeling that comes in. It, and it's interesting, it so often uh, and commonly happens in and among our children, right? Where they feel a distance from their parents. Where they're, You'll even hear them say, oh, I'd never talk to my parents about that. Right, you, so you don't, you don't want to talk to some of the most experienced people on the planet. Okay, all right, that's cool. That makes sense. Uh, who know you and care for you, right? So think about how that's an interesting thing that is kind of part of our own brokenness that cuts us off before we even understand why. Right, it separates us before we can ever get our feet up under us in the world, which is evidence of the true nature of the fall in us, is it not? And so, uh, this sense of cut-offness is something that comes up for us a lot. And so, it's, it's something that we, we, we understand well, and the better question is, what would you do to get out of it? How far would you go? How much would you do to get out of it? For many people, it's, they would do anything they could to get out from under it. That feeling of not being loved, that feeling of not being cared for, that feeling of not being seen, which is often various descriptions of exile for different people. And so what we need to understand straight away is this is God's greatest desire for us, his people, is that we would not feel cut off, that we would not feel unseen, that we would not feel unloved, that we would recognize the worst possible thing is known about you, and yet God loves you still. That you still get to, as Hebrews so beautifully tells us in chapter 4, you get to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive in a time of trouble what you need, both mercy and grace. So that you would be reminded that shame and guilt are not your lot, that you get to come boldly, and that God loves you so much that he will grant you what you would never be able to deserve, what you could never purchase with your behavior or money or anything else. See, exile is not God's desired location for his people. And yet, so often, we go there 
as if it is a red badge of courage. We stay there as if he never said to us who sit in darkness, come out. As if he never came to comfort, comfort his people. And so what we're gonna hear this morning is yet again, God saying to his people, don't live there. Come live with me in uh, joy everlasting. Come and reside with the creator of the universe so that you would know who and whose you are. Don't forget what he said last week. He said, come awake, rise from the dust of death, put on the beautiful garment, sit knowing you are set free from sin and death and know that I am with you. And what we're going to see here is Isaiah almost can't help himself. He breaks out into song. This that we're going to see is a hymn. It's a hymn that Isaiah penned. I think Satan's attacking my cord again. It's a hymn that Isaiah penned in response to the Lord saying, come awake. Now would that we were not so linear that we at times could break out into song now you know why we sang before this sermon, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh, that we would be able to break out in praise whenever we see the goodness of the Lord our God instead of spending so much of our, our time trying to explain it away and trying to hide from such beauty and glory. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord of Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, what we have here is by virtue of God saying to the people, come awake, come awake. There are a group of folks who are now carrying this message all throughout the places where God's people are and they are in exile. They are cut off from the things of the Lord. And one of the things that's important to understand about exile is that it is unlike God, right? I'm glad that Josh pointed out that God is, is, he is unchanging. That's one of the reasons we read the psalm that we read this morning is our call to worship. God is unchanging, but here's what's interesting about exile. It is ever evolving so as to further take away. We saw this in the Exodus, right? The generation that comes into the Exodus is, is dealt with very differently than when the Pharaoh comes into power who had no idea who Joseph was right? It says that in scripture. In fact, he begins to oppress them in harsher and harsher and harsher ways. Why? Because he was bearing witness to the Lord keeping his promises to his people, even though they were in exile. And he couldn't stand it because he thought himself God and the one who ought to be in charge. Every other kind of exile goes much the same way. 
Any of you who have had any struggles with addiction of any kind, you know this all too well. You never go where you wanted to go. It never ends where you started. It never feels the same over time, does it? And it never actually leaves much of you left. Whatever it may be, exile is always consuming and destructive. And so it's important that we see that our God who is never changing, who is the promise keeper, the promise maker, who finishes what he began, that these people are carrying that message and they come declaring the gospel, the good news. And notice there are three things that are stated here. They declare peace, they declare happiness, and they declare salvation. Now, are those three radically different things? Or are they just the same way of saying the same thing about God's goodness to us? They are, literally are saying the same thing. So for us to have true peace, which means not just that there's a ceasefire, right? How many of you have ever been in a relational situation where there's a ceasefire? That's a piece of a sort, but did it actually bring full peace? Did it bring restoration? Ceasefires don't bring restoration. Ceasefires don't necessarily mean that the war is over. It just means that we're reloading. It just means that we are trying a different tactic. It just means that we grew tired for a bit and are now getting our feet back up under us. True peace in the biblical sense means that everything is made new, that everything is restored. And it's that Hebrew word I'm sure many of you have heard if you've read anything by Tim Keller ever uh, or any of the other modern folks, shalom. Such a beautiful word. And it really means so much more than our bare word peace means. It means everything is made right. Well, isn't that what salvation truly is? And unfortunately, I think that what we have turned salvation into sometimes is just a get-out-of-hell-free card. And that as long as we're not going to hell, we don't think much else about what life ought to look like. That's why these three terms together are so important. And so salvation is so much more than where you're not going. And it really is about where you are going and who is going with you. And then there's that word in the middle that we reform folks let a whole nother denomination run off with. And that word's happiness. Right? We, we don't sin about happiness. It's about God. <laughs> Not mutually exclusive, by the way. Right? To be in the presence of the Lord, the creator of the universe, the one who made you, who redeemed you, and loves you. Why in the world would we have a sour look on our face about so great a truth? Why would we not want to rejoice and praise and sing and raise our voices a little bit? Cameron, you're scaring the children. Well, sorry. But we ought to be a people who have a joy about us that is seen. I love that it says, eye to eye they see the Lord reigns. Not just knowledge. It is something that can be witnessed and seen and felt. We, out of all people, in a world that is convulsing under the weight of neurosis and anxiety and fear, ought to be the ones who change 
palpably the temperature of the room for the good. We ought to be the ones who have a firm gospel to bring. How beautiful would be our feet if what we brought was this message of salvation and peace and happiness because our God reigns. But so often, what do we bring? More fear. More anxiety. More discontent. Because we're so concerned about our destination that we forgot the journey. That between the now and the not yet, we are here as a kingdom of priests for the life of the world. And the world is uninterested in your neurosis. It has its own. The world is uninterested in your petty anxiety. It has far greater its own. The world is utterly uninterested in fire insurance. What they want is to know how to live how to be alive, how to come out of exile. Where is the comfort, comfort for God's people? (laughs) Sandy, you're getting a call. (laughs) Maybe God, no. But where are we able to have the beautiful feet that brings the good news that our God reigns? One of the interesting things that many theologians think that he, the reason that he points out feet in this regard is because in their culture, it's one of the nastiest things you would behold because they had open-toed shoes. OSHA hadn't been invented yet, obviously. Uh, They had open-toed shoes and it was dusty and foul and all that kind of stuff. So their feet would have been so grimy, but this is how glorious the good news that even the most foul part of your body would be beautiful to those to whom you would carry this message. He also, other theologians seem to think it was just also showing the quotidian nature by which it would come, just mere feet would bring the message, nothing particularly exciting. And so as these folks come singing this good news, the chorus grows. There are people called watchmen who would have been looking for the declaration that God had been victorious. They are sitting in exile, right? This is one of the places where uh, Israel may have actually been slightly um, obedient. They knew the promises. Remember that we, we, we hear from Jeremiah, that passage we like to quote, I have a plan for you. Now, some of you who are graduating are going to get some, some stuff with this on it. You better hope the rest of it's not true, which is the 70 years of exile part. Uh, but he, he's saying, I have a plan for you to deliver you and that your 70 years of exile are not going to be wasted. Being in college for 70 years is just a bad model, by the way. It's super expensive. Not good. I, trust me, I, I did about 13 total. Uh, so it's really important that we recognize um, that, that the, the song grows as it reaches the people who've been looking for it. The watchmen can't help themselves, but join in the praise chorus that the Lord is victorious. And it's not merely knowledge, it's they're witnessing things change. Eye to eye, they see. And as they turn and begin to tell the people who are in exile, the chorus grows. This hymn gets larger. And in fact, they begin to declare to all of creation itself, you waste places of Jerusalem, you join the chorus too. 
And this evidence is that God's reign, God's redemption is truly cosmic. We as New Testament people ought to also hear not just a faint echo, but the loud declaration of Romans chapter 8. That all of creation stands on tiptoe with neck outstretched, which is the more poetic rendering of that, looking and longing for the sons and daughters of glory to be revealed so that the fall, which includes creation, that has enslaved even the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the flowers of the ground, that even it longs to be set free. It groans, longing to see all this good news come. And so this chorus, it groans. This good news of peace, happiness, and salvation, not just for the people of God, but for creation as well, cosmic in scope. Let me put an asterisk right here for those of you who may think I just went universalistic. No, I didn't. People of God. Uh, creation, cosmic scope doesn't mean everybody, but it does mean everywhere. It does mean every tongue, tribe, and nation will be represented. It does mean that there's no place where God's light cannot reach. There's no darkness so deep where he cannot find his people. The psalmist even tells us that. He says, even when I dwell in darkness, it is as the noonday to you, Lord, you are there. Even when I make my bed in shale, the grave, you are there. There is no place I can go from you because you have fashioned me. You knew every fiber of my being. You created me. You decided the number of my days. Now, we may like to kick against that particular goad, but I don't know that Silicon Valley is going to get it together fast enough to make you immortal through some freezer and upload you into some computer Again, for some 12-year-old someday to manipulate and do with what he wills. If that's what you want your God to be, good luck with that. And so here we hear again the chorus growing. And it's growing not just for the people of God who are in exile, not just for creation that groans under the weight of the fall of this world, but also for the life of the world. Notice what it says as we get to the end of verse 10, it says, The Lord bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And one of the things we're not as comfortable with in our modern culture is the image of God as warrior. We don't really like that a whole lot. And, and, and in some sense, justifiably so, because if we're going to compare God as warrior to those who start wars, right? Those who just slaughter indiscriminately, well then yes, that is a very uncomfortable image. But it's important that when you think of God as warrior, you remember that he is God the Father. Now who among you as parents, if your children were in trouble of some kind, imminent threat would not bear your not so holy arm and seek to defend them? You would. There's not one of you in here who would step back and go, you know what? God's sovereign. He's got to let it happen. He's got to let, it, let him suffer. You would rise up a warrior suddenly. Even those among you who are more 
timid or more reserved in personality. That's the whole mama bear mentality, right? That if you come at my children, it's not going to go well for you. I ain't never fought a day in my life, but I will figure it out quick if you try to hurt my child. What we have to remember is that God comes as warrior because his children are being harmed in exile. They are being destroyed by sin and death because of Satan himself. And so he comes declaring an eternal no. You will not take my children. You will not steal my image bearers and rob this world of my glory. Now, that doesn't solve every question, now does it? And if you're concerned that there may be people going to hell, good. I expect you to get out and evangelize. I expect you to get quickly upon mission, as we all should. That is not something that's taken away because of the sovereignty of God. In fact, it's the sovereignty of God that makes mission for us potentially effective, actually. And so we ought to heartily join this chorus. We ought to look for every opportunity in our spheres of influence to share this with any and everybody that we can in the ways in which he has gifted and equipped us. Which is using the means of grace. The first step of evangelism is always prayer. You got no business going where it ain't prepared for you to go. You got no business rising up in your own strength trying to declare what has not been given to your mouth to declare. So we ought to be first move praying folk. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that sounds like a cop out. I'll just sit around and pray all the time. No. Prayer ought to be followed very quickly and immediately by presence. We ought to, by virtue of displaying our peace, our happiness, our salvation, because our God reigns in front of others, our presence ought to declare those things so that our words have some context. And you may say, well, how long does that take? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I know it doesn't take forever. And I know that it ought to happen at some point. So between those two poles, get to work. Praying and being present, cultivating your peace, your happiness. Again, if your soul has been redeemed, somebody ought to let your face know. Right? So that people can... <laughs> I've threatened to take a smiling class because I feel like I'm just so bad at it. Uh, I don't, I don't, if they have one, somebody let me know. If somebody wants to start one, I'll come. So it's important that we are present and let people see what is the impact of this God upon us. And it's not just uh, that, that it, it, you share the gospel and if necessary, use words. There is no amount of your behavior that's actually going to exemplify the crucifixion of Christ. You can't get there from you. But what people ought to see is when you open your mouth about the crucifixion, ascension, and coming again of Christ, that it will make a whole lot more sense as to why it matters. And so Isaiah teaches us this beautiful hymn that is in essence the answer to where the third book of Isaiah begins, which is Isaiah 40. So if you don't mind, hold your place where you are. Let's flip back to Isaiah 40. I'm gonna read verses one through five, just so you, 
you hear how all of this is so beautifully put together. Again, this is in poetic form. This could have been a hymn as well. We're not, theologians aren't exactly sure. They do know it was written in verse with meter, which means it could be sung and used in worship. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let me pause right there. Not double judgment, double cure. Grace. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we see in this hymn is the declaration that that is coming true. And we also see it in Mark chapter 1 when Mark begins to declare the kingship of Christ himself. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 40, does he not? And so what we see here is the promises of God are being kept. That his reigning is something to be declared. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 gives us an interesting qualification. If you remember Hebrews chapter 2, it's where Psalm 8 is quoted about Jesus, the Psalm 8 man. And it says that everything has been placed under his feet. But then the author of Hebrews says something very honest. Although it doesn't look like it right now. And so, why didn't it look like it right now? Why is this story not over? Well, because God is not yet satisfied with the size of his family. He wants it to be larger. And I don't understand all that, but I do understand that when he comes, the family cannot get any bigger. And between the now and the not yet of his return, the family can get bigger. And we are the hands and feet of Christ by which that family will get bigger in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what life are we living? What song are we singing? Listen to what Alan Harmon says about this portion of scripture. He says, the Lord's salvation is not just directed to Zion and Jerusalem, but it also concerns the whole world. Like a warrior who pulls back his upper garment so that he may fight more easily, so the Lord is ready to demonstrate his might in redeeming his people. So what impact does God's present reign in Christ have on your life? See, too often I think that what we think is that this ought to be a passive reality. Right? What we think is I ought to wake up in the morning and, and, and maybe have uh, stencil on the wall, our God reigns. And that the Lord will suddenly fill me with joy passively because he reigns. No, you are in a fallen world. You are not yet perfected. You must do the hard work of cultivating this reality in faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. There are times when he grants us a supernatural peace, does he not? There are times he is so kind 
to recognize when we are in desperate need to know that he reigns. But there are other times when he will test our faith, when he will leave us some room to cultivate the garden and decide how beautiful we want it really to be. How much does his reign mean to us? And so what impact is it having on your life? And by virtue of impact, the better question is, what are you doing to cultivate it? If you believe that it's true, even though you can't see it in full right now, if you believe it's true in faith, how is it affecting your decision-making? How is it affecting your ability to love those in your spheres of influence? How is it affecting your parenting? How is it affecting your married life? How is it affecting every single riven aspect of your being? Because if he reigns, he reigns over it all. And are you enjoying, better question, maybe, as an aspect of this, are you actually enjoying the benefits of his peace, his happiness, and salvation as a result of his reign. Again, some of you may think that this is a passive situation, that you just should wake up with it. No, no, that's actually quite the opposite. This is a reality you must cultivate and lean into. It doesn't come natural to us, now does it? And so we have to go after it in prayer, in the study of his word, in the conversations that we have in our communities, in the kinds of things that we are taking in, right? We all are deeply affected by what we take in. Those of you may think, you may in some measure of judgment say, well, Cameron, if you don't listen to all that crazy music, you might be less melancholy. I would say if you didn't watch a certain news channel, maybe you would have more hope. Sorry. It, that's both of us. You're right, but I'm right too. And that's not the only thing, by the way. Don't just think I'm spilling tea on those who are uh, in that particular category. It's all, it's all of the things that we're taking in, right? And all the just ways in which we are looking for anything other than evidence of God's reign. It's almost like we're trying to prove he's not there, I guess, so we can eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so, who are you sharing this with? And if you're not sharing, and by the way, remember, what's the truth of your witness? Every single one of you, you are witnessing. Everywhere you go, everybody who sees you has an opinion about you. Trust me. You want to find out? Cross them. Just for fun. Make sure you tell them later it was all a great big joke. Right? But everybody, every neighbor, right? They see. They, they, they fill in the blanks. They make up narratives about you. Right? I would love to know what my neighbors think about me in so many respects, but I'm too scared to ask. And, and not just your neighbors, but your coworkers, your family, everybody's got an opinion. So you're witnessing. Now the question is, how intentional are you about that witness? How cultivated are you in that witness? So this question of who are you sharing it with, you're sharing it with everybody around you. The question is, what are you sharing? If you would turn back to the text, 
And let's see the call to the new exodus, which is God's deliverance of his kingdom priests for the life of the world. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go in haste and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go with you. And the, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now this, for those of you who uh, um, know anything about the Exodus, this is heavy Exodus language. And notice what he's saying. The song has broken out, and now it's time to go. And God says, now go. And what's interesting is he says, I don't want you taking any of the, the filthy stuff with you. Leave it behind but do make sure you bring the stuff of the means of grace. That's the vessels of the Lord. This would have been the things that would have displayed God's glory in a tangible way. It's something that I think we, the Reformed Church, have, and I'm, I'm gonna be careful here, I, I think sometimes we maybe went too far. That we rendered all sorts of, of displays almost out of hand and unworthy of, of being part of the, the worship space. Um, but, but this would have been the vessels that would have contained uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, all the different things that would have reminded them of who and whose they are. And so what he's saying to them is you are a kingdom of priests, which is, he's just quoting Exodus 19. That's what they were to all be. If you remember, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 made it very clear to us that we are also in that same vein called to be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do, by the way? What do they declare? You're forgiven. Remember what just, the apostles are told in John? What are they given the keys to? What are they told they have the ability to declare? The forgiveness of sins and that has real power in it. Not that they are deciding who's forgiven, but that as they declare it, those words are true because of who God is and how he's the promise keeper. And so when he tells them, rise up and go, you're rising up and going for a purpose, not to live for your own. You're not being set free so you can go wild out and get crazy. You're being set free to go declare the glory of God. You've been given a mission from the God who missionally came for you. He's also making it very clear that he is with them. Notice this language of I will be before you and I will be after you. In fact, I am surrounding you as you go. How often do we forget that? How little do we lean into that reality that the Lord God is with us? One of the verses that uh, I, I hope never comes true for me is the one where Paul uh, is on trial and he says, none stood with me, except for Christ. So all of his friends weren't there. He, at long last, was alone in the hands of men to be dealt with as they chose, so they thought, but as he knew in the sovereignty of God because Christ was with him even in that dock. And so here, God is saying, I am with you. Rise up out of the darkness, and go. Go where? Go where others sit in exile and shame 
and darkness and declare the same thing to them so that your feet will be declared beautiful as you declare that your God reigns, as you display the glorious vessels of your peace, happiness, and salvation before a watching world. And so we have to remember the truth of Romans 8. If you would, turn there quickly. And we're gonna read verses 31 through 39 as a reminder of the truth of this. This isn't just an Old Testament idea. This is a cosmic reality. Listen to how Paul says this. These words are just beautiful. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, that should call to your mind the uh, um, Westminster Confession, chapter 11, uh, paragraph 3 that we read is our confession. So who is it that justifies? Our God alone through the richness of his mercy and grace. What beautiful words. It goes on. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you know that? Did you know that God has Christ interceding for you from his seated position of reign and authority? That's what it means that Christ reigns. Is that Satan can never declare something of you that Christ has declared untrue. What a gift. Now, some of you may be worried. Well, did you just give people license to sin? No, far to the contrary. Because he said, be holy for I am holy. Right? That was in that, second, that first Peter passage. And we have to remember it gives us a license to actually worship in spirit and truth. That all of the negative things that are whispered low or shouted loud over us by Satan with his forked tongue ain't none of it true in Christ. And Christ leans across to make sure that that is never forgotten before the throne of grace so that when you come in your time of trouble, you will receive all that you need, both mercy and grace. Amen? And it goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of that because Christ has overcome the world. That's why we read John 16. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why is that not good news to us? Whether you feel it or not, why not expend your energy fighting toward that to see, in fact, if it's true, instead of wasting all your energy wallowing in exile where it doesn't look true at all? 
For you who sit in darkness, come out. For you in need of comfort, come and receive comfort. Listen to what Barry G. Webb says about this passage. He says, they will go out with dignity and decorum, right? Remember what the passage says. You don't have to be in a hurry. You don't have to run this time. There is no Pharaoh's army behind you. Notice the other passages in the Old Testament where it says, the wicked flee when there is no one pursuing. Why are so many of you on the run? He continues, like priests in procession, but the real glory of this exodus as of the first will be the presence of God with them. He will go before and behind, guiding and protecting them every step of the way. So the question for us, for those of you who have been in exile, which you all have in one form or fashion or the other, because we are all born of Adam and Eve. We're all broken in sin. What good things of God did you bring out of exile, the exile of your former life, that makes, it, makes you better able to show and tell others of his love and goodness? You see, even when you were in exile, God was at work. I experienced this very specifically. And during probably some of the darkest times of my life, I worked for a gentleman who was paralyzed from the neck down, a man named John King, uh, who I loved dearly and, and worked for him for about eight, between eight and 10 years. And I watched him like a hawk. I was high on philosophy at that time and, and was, was just knew he would have to go into despair at some point. He could only move his head from side to side. He was a C1, C2 quadriplegic, a little higher than Christopher Reeves, for those of you who remember the original Superman movie, not the show. And so he never, he never hated his life, but I did mine. And so as time would go on and I worked for him every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, or Wednesday, Friday, Saturday night, and even Sunday nights oftentimes, I became a believer later on and had a gap between when I graduated physical therapy school and when my license would kick into effect, and the Kings asked me to come back and work for them for a brief period of time. And it was interesting to go back and realize all of the times that the Lord, our God, preserved me through those horrible Golden Girls reruns <laughs> and that horrible show in the heat of the night. And all that time I spent with a guy who was paralyzed and couldn't do any of the fun stuff I wanted to do self-destructively. And the Lord spoke so clearly. It was 3.30 in the morning. I was sitting in the same leather chair I'd sat in for 10 years on every uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, Wednesdays as well. And I felt like I hadn't moved. And the Lord said, well, that was a good thing. I preserved you because you would have destroyed yourself. And there are so many things like that that we can all point back to, right? Where God was so good he loved us in our arrogance. He loved us in our religiosity. He preserved us when we thought we were right, wrongly, at the top of our lungs about so many things. He was there. Because he's always been with his people and he always will be. And we can trust that too in the lives of those around us who don't currently profess faith. We don't know who will and won't. That's not up for us to decide. That's why we have to share broadly. That's why we have to share with the totality of our lives. So evangelism is not specific. It's sphere influence specific, 
but it's not specific to just an individual that you think might best fit our church. All who come to Christ would best fit this church, I hope, I pray. Might be messy, but that's all right. It all is. And so would that we would break out some of those good vessels. The stuff that we brought with us out of exile, all that good, those moments where we knew somebody was praying for us. We heard a scripture, encountered somebody who just messed up our categories about what Christians really are. Would that we would be the kingdom of priests that God has called us to be, singing a hymn, fast on our lips. Maybe some of you think, I can't sing too good. Well, go with more kind of the scat model. Just say it like Conway Twitty. (laughs) So what do we learn from Isaiah 52, 7 through 12? Is that it teaches us that God reigns victorious, granting us peace, happiness, and salvation for the life of the world and the deliverance from sin and death, uh, that we were delivered from sin and death to serve as priests for the life of the world. Listen to what John Oswalt says in closing. He says, as wonderful as creation was and as true as divine providence is, it is redemption that is earth's great song. For without redemption, creation and providence are ultimately abortive. The world is caught in the bondage of sin and destruction. Creation is fatally marred, and providence makes the bondage only bearable. But if it is possible to be delivered from human sin and its effects, then creation may yet see its children, and providence may yet lead us to the Father's house. That is cause for joy. Not for humans alone, but for the whole cosmos. Redemption ought to be something that gives us great joy. Reconciliation ought to be something that just stirs a happiness and a peace within us. God's willingness to save broken folks like us ought to move us more than it does. But the good news is this. Even when it doesn't, creation groans and the spirit groans on your behalf. There is still yet a way. It is not that your failures have any sort of final say. Remember, Christ makes intercession for his people. Amen? Nothing can separate us. And that ought to lead us to worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us to join the chorus of praise of redemption that has started even before the foundation of the world. God, we thank you that your redemption is not plan B. It was always the plan. I don't know how to make all that math work, but I do know how to celebrate it being true. Would you teach us how to sing better than we do? Would you show us the places where you have redeemed and reconciled and held together when we thought none of that was true? Would you help us to be able to share this good news with those around us so that they would declare how beautiful our feet are? that brings them the message, the hymn that they join in and sing. Would you help us to see where you are reigning and making your people your people? Would you teach us how to be a kingdom of priests who display the good glory that you have given to us through the means of grace, through our lives, through redemption, through reconciliation? 
Would you give us a heart for others in our spheres of influence? Would you grant us opportunities to see your kingdom, your church grow tangibly so that as eye to eye, we would see that you reign. In Christ's name, amen.